Chapter number 16 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter number 16. Some take him for a tool that knaves do work with called a fool. Fools are known by looking wise, as men find woodcocks by their eyes. Hudibras. The solitude of Castle Carberry was interrupted in less than a fortnight by visits and invitations from the neighboring families. The first they accepted was to dinner at Mr. Kilbourne's. He was a man of large fortune, which, in the opinion of many, compensated for the want of polished manners and a cultivated mind. But others, of a more liberal way of thinking, could not possibly excuse those deficiencies, which were more apparent from his pretending to every excellence and more intolerable from his deeming himself authorized by his wealth and consequence to say and do almost whatever he pleased his lady was like himself a compound of ignorance pride and vanity their offspring was numerous and the three who were sufficiently old to make their appearance were considered by their parents and themselves as the very models of elegance and perfection the young heir had been sent to the university but permitted to be his own master he had profited little by his residence there Enough, however, perhaps he thought for a man of fortune, who wanted not professional knowledge. His face was coarse, his person inelegant, and his taste in adorning himself preposterously ridiculous. Fashion, Hoyle, and the looking-glass were his chief studies, and by his family and self he was considered quite the thing. The young ladies were supposed to be very accomplished, because they had instructors in almost every branch of education but in reality they understood little more than the names of what they were attempted to be taught. Nature had not been lavish of her gifts. Of this, however, they were conscious, and patched, powdered, and painted in the very extremity of the mode. Their mornings were generally spent rolling about in the coach and six with their mamma, collecting news and paying visits. Their evenings were constantly devoted to company, without which they declared they could not exist. They sometimes affected languor and sentiment, talked of friendship, and professed for numbers, the most sincere. Yet, to the very girls they pretended to regard, delighted in exhibiting their finery, if certain they could not purchase the same and would feel mortified by seeing it. Mr. Kilborn had indulged his family in a trip to Bath one autumn, and in so doing, had afforded a never-failing subject for conversation. Upon every occasion, the delightful excursion was mentioned— the novelties they saw, the admiration they excited, the elegant intimacies they formed, the amazing sum they expended, were all described and exaggerated. Lady Greystock, an ancient widow, was at present on a visit to them. She had known Fitzallen in his youth, and now, with pleasure, renewed her intimacy with him, and the account she gave of his family and connections prepossessed the neighborhood in his favor. She was a shrewd, sensible woman. The dignity of her person commended respect, but the sarcastic expression of her countenance prevented her consolating esteem. An old chariot belonging to the Earl of Carberry, which had been for years unemployed in the coach house, was brought forth for the purpose of conveying Fitzallen and his daughter on their visits. After a good deal of rubbing and washing, it was found tolerably decent, and they proceeded in it to Mr. Kilborne's which was about two miles from Castle Carberry. A numerous party was already assembled. While Amanda was paying her compliments to Mr. Kilbourne and Lady Greystock, a general whisper relative to her took place among the younger part of the company, who had formed themselves into a group and the quite distant from the rest. One gentleman swore she was a devilish fine girl. 
He was seconded in the remark by another, who extolled her complexion. You are a simpleton, cried a young lady, who was reckoned a great wit. I would engage for half a crown to get as fine a color in Dublin. Her companions laughed and declared she only spoke truth in saying so. Mr. Brian Kilborn, who leaned on a chair, said a bill should be brought into the house to tax such complexions. For kill me, he continued, the ladies are so irresistible from nature. It is quite unconscionable to call in art as an auxiliary. He then stalked over to Amanda, who sat by Lady Greystock, lolling over her chair. He declared he thought the tedious hours would never elapse till again blessed with her presence. Of her, he said, it was sufficient to have but one glimpse to make him pant for the second. A summons to dinner relieved her from the nonsense. Luxury and ostentation were conspicuous in this fair and decorations of the table, and Amanda never felt any hours so tedious as those she passed at it. When the ladies returned to the drawing room, the Miss Kilborns and their companions began to examine and admire her dress. What a pretty pattern this gown is worked in, said one. What a sweet becoming cap that is, cried a second. Well, certainly the English milliners have a great deal of taste, my dear, said Miss Kilborn, whispering to Amanda. I have a monstrous favor to ask of you, drawing her at the same instant to the window. I am sure, said Amanda, any in my power to grant I shall with pleasure. Oh, really? Then it is in your power. It is only to refuse the pattern of your cap to any girls who may ask you for it, and to give it to me and my sister. You cannot conceive how we dote on being the first in fashion. One is so stared at and so envied. I detest anything when it becomes common. You cannot think how we were teased every summer when we returned from Dublin for fashions, but we always make it a point to refuse. I must tell you a delightful trick I played on a friend of mine. She received a large present from the most beautiful muslins from India when she laid by till I returned from town, supposing I would let her see my things, as I always told her I was extremely fond of her. Well, I lent her a gown, which was quite old-fashioned, but assured her it was the very newest mode. She accordingly had her beautiful muslins cut in imitation of it, and so spoiled them for making any other habit. Well, we met at an assize ball, where the elegant people of the country were assembled, and I declare I never saw so ridiculous a figure as she made, when she found herself unlike everyone in the room, I really thought she would have fainted, and that my poor fit sister and I should have expired with laughing. Poor thing, the tears absolutely trickled down her cheeks. Do not you think it was a charming trick? Very much so, said Amanda. I think it gave a striking specimen of your humor. Well, my dear, exclaimed Miss Kilborn, without minding the marked emphasis of Amanda's last words, if you allow us, my sister and I will call on you tomorrow to look over your things. It will be giving yourselves a great deal of unnecessary trouble, replied Amanda, coolly, who did not by any means relish this forward proposal. My things can boast of little but simplicity. I am always my own milliner. Really? Well, I protest you have a great deal of taste. My maid, who is very handy, would, I think, be able to make up things pretty much in the same style, if you were obliging enough to give her your patterns. If you do, perhaps, you will add to the favor and allow us to say they are the newest bath fashions. Was you ever at bath? No. Oh, then I assure you have a monstrous pleasure to come. It is the sweetest place on earth, quite a paradise. I declare I thought I should have died with grief at leaving it. 
Papa had been so inexorable ever since our entreaties for a second trip. He says the first cost too much money. Indeed, it was enormous sum. Only think how much. I am the worst person in the world, said Amanda, for guessing, sick of her impertinent volubility, and moving from the window. The evening was fine, and the grounds about the house beautiful. She therefore proposed a walk. At this proposal, the young ladies, who had hitherto been in deep confab, looked at each other and remained silent for some minutes. Miss Kilbourne, then, who had no notion of gratifying the inclination of her guest, by the sacrifice of her own, said, It blew a little, and that her hair would be ruined, and that the marshal powder blown from by such a walk. Another young lady, looking down at her white satin slippers, vowed she would not venture into the grass for worlds. A third declared, when once dressed, she could not bear to be tumbled. Amanda had too much politeness to repeat her wish, and it was, therefore, unanimously agreed upon among the fair quartet that they should continue in the drawing-room to be in the status quo of the reappearance of the bow. Lady Greystock now beckoned to our heroine to take a seat by her. She gladly obeyed. "'Well, my dear,' said her ladyship, "'I hope you have had enough of these country misses, "'those would-be misses of the ton.' Amanda smiled assentingly. "'Heaven defend me or anyone I like,' continued her ladyship from their clack. The confusion of Babel was, I really believe, inferior to the tongue of their caste, yet some have the absurdity to reckon these girls accomplished. Poor Miss Kilbourne torments one with the perfections of her daughters. Against they are disposed of, which she imagines will be very soon. She has a new brood of graces, training up to bring out. Mercy on me, what is said of Hoydens? I would lay my life at this very instant they are galloping about the nursery, like a parcel of wild colts, tearing or tormenting an unfortunate French governess, who was formerly filled de chambre to a woman of quality, and does not understand even the grammatical part of her own language. Mrs. Kilbourne's opinion of her children, said Amanda, is natural, considering the partiality of a parent. Yes, but not more bearable on that account, replied her ladyship, and I should endeavor to open her eyes to her folly, if I thought her acquaintances would forgive my depriving them of such a fund of amusement. Mr. Brian Kilbourne, with some gentlemen, now entered the room and advanced to Amanda. So, said he, you have got by the dowager, hang me, but I would let my beard grow if all the women resembled her in their dispositions. By the way of appearing sagacious, I suppose, said her ladyship, who was extremely quick and had caught the last words. Alas, poor youth, no embellishments on the exterior would ever be able to make us believe the tenement within well furnished. Her ladyship was now summoned to a whist table, and Miss Kilbourne immediately took her vacant seat. My dear creature, said she, are you not bored to death? Lady Greystock has a queer piece, I can assure you. I suppose she was asking some favor of you, such as to work her apron or her handkerchief. She is noted everywhere for requesting such little jobs, as she calls them. Indeed, we should never put up with the trouble she gives us, but she is vastly rich. And Papa's relation? And has no one so nearly connected with her as we are? All very good reasons for your complacence, said Amanda. But should you not be more careful in concealing them? Oh, Lord, no. Everyone knows them as well as we do ourselves. She was here last summer and took a fancy to the pattern of an apron of mine and made me the reasonable request of working on one like it for her. All this she pretended was to prevent me from being idle. Well, I said I would and rode up to the Moravian house in Dublin 
where I had got mine, for one exactly like it. In due time, I received and presented it to the dowager, certain that in return I should receive a few of her diamond pins, which she had often heard me admire. They are the prettiest I ever saw, and quite unfit for her. But she had the cruelty to disappoint me. Upon my faith, cried Miss Kilborn, who had taken a chair to the other side of Amanda, listened with evident pleasure to her daughter's voluble speech. Lady Greystock is an odd being. I never met with anyone like her in all my travels through England, Ireland, and Wales, but she is a great orator and possesses the gift of the gab in a wonderful degree. Ah, indeed, thought Amanda, and you and your fair daughters resemble her in that respect. After tea, she was prevailed on to sit down in commerce, but she soon grew tired of the party as of the game and lost on purpose to be released. She had hoped for a little more chat with Lady Greystock, but her ladyship was passionately fond of cards and at all times would have preferred the pleasures of a card table to the eloquence of a Cicero. Kilborn, on finding her disengaged, tormented her with many absurd compliments. A challenge to a bag table at length relieved her from this nonsense, and she loitered about the card tables till they broke up for supper. Amanda always expressed to her father her sentiments of any company she had been in, and those she now delivered on quitting the party perfectly coincided with this. He laughed at the account which the Kilborns had given of Lady Greystock, to whom he knew they paid most extravagant flattery, in hopes of obtaining some of her large fortune. End of chapter 16, recorded by Catherine.